This is Writer's Voice, and I'm Francesca Rhiannon. This week, we have a short program for you in honor of the winter solstice and the holidays. I read my story, The Food Philosoph. Sometimes foodism, not Buddhism, is the path to nirvana. We hear about a winter solstice feast in Provence that led to some delicious life lessons. Twenty years ago, I spent several months living in southern France. Soon after my arrival in the fall of 2001, I became good friends with a couple living in the old Roman town of Apt. I had been introduced to them, Michel, a chef, and his wife, Marie-Jo, by my friend, the writer Fabienne Pasquet. On December 21st, Marie-Jo and Michel threw a dinner party to celebrate the winter solstice. The food was divine, the wine likewise, and the company convivial, and I ended up learning a profound lesson about the French art of living. I wrote my experience up in the story The Food Philosophe, part of a longer memoir of my sojourn in Provence titled Province of the Heart. Fabienne unwrapped a large black truffle from its napkin with a mysterious smile. Everybody oohed and odd. She laid it on a plate so it could be passed around the company for inspection. I lifted it hesitantly to my nose, not wanting to violate some unspoken rule of etiquette. It had a delicate and alluring scent, surprising, like eau de turpentine with hints of erotic musk. The round completed, Fabienne shaved dark slivers of the fungus onto crackers, which she handed around as if they were the Holy Communion. Mine almost wafted to my lips. I nibbled cautiously. The savor was subtle, one might even say faint. The truffle was a trifle immature, but no matter. Mystique trumped taste. It was the first time I'd ever seen the rare delicacy, much less eaten one. Murmurs of appreciation rippled through the assembled guests. Then we sat down to eat in earnest. I arrived at Michelle and Marie-Jo's house in Apt a day or two before the winter solstice. The city was locked into a deep freeze. Marie-Jo fretted about the survival of the fig and olive trees shivering in her front yard. Snow covered the ground, and even the bright sun did little to soften the cold. My hosts had little time for me. They were engrossed in complicated preparations for a winter solstice feast they were giving on the morrow. I hovered on the margin like an anthropologist observing native rituals. The work had begun a day before my arrival. Michel, a professional chef who cooked for private clients in the region, spent much of the time at the stove or chopping block, obsessed like an alchemist in his study. A man of many sides and a checkered past, he'd come late to the gastronomic arts. 
In his youth, he'd spent close to a decade in prison. The details were never forthcoming, but it had something to do with underworld gangs in Marseille. He would have looked the part, too, were it not for his ebullient warmth. He had a street tough's body, barreled and bandy-legged, and his temper could be fierce. The tenaciousness of his grudges was legendary. The one time I crossed him, inadvertently, I should add, it took a good deal of bowing and scraping on my part before he let me back into his good graces. But it was worth it. Michelle has one of those hearts so capacious that it stretches its boundaries to an overly fragile state. It's all too easily pierced. He professes a misanthropy that exists only in the abstract, although I don't doubt its sincerity. I hate people, he proclaims. I want to be completely alone, except for Marichaud, of course. And he will expel a short, fierce sigh of dismay that deflates his entire body, beginning by crumpling his shoulders and threatening to collapse his knees. After prison, Michel went to Paris and found a job in a restaurant. He worked his way up to chef and lived an extravagant lifestyle with fast cars, big houses, and an expensive wife. Then divorce and depression sent his fortune spinning downward. He lost everything and returned to his home region of Provence. One day, Michel had a car accident. Marie-Joe, a nurse, was called to stitch him up. On an evening not long after that, while Marie-Joe, who was single at the time, was getting dinner together for her kids, she heard a knock at the door. She opened it to find Michel standing there. He asked her to please help him commit suicide in her professional capacity as a nurse. He wanted her to get him the pills he needed to do the deed. Marie-Jo, of course, refused this proposition, which I suspect was not entirely as sincere as it appeared. My job is to help people live, not help them die, she told him. He left, supposedly angry. She brooded, upset. Several days later, when she noticed his car parked along a curb, she left a sprig of rosemary under the windshield wiper. When he returned to his car and spied the spiky curl of green, he knew immediately who had put it there. He invited Marie-Jo to dinner. They've been together ever since. You are the one for me, for me, for me, formidable. You are my love, very, 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 veritable. The day of the feast, the guests assembled around one o'clock in the afternoon. The first to arrive was a wealthy couple that ran a local guest house. The husband, a red-faced, voluble former entrepreneur, was retired from the plumbing fixtures trade. Within minutes of his entrance, he had already boasted that of, that of every three bidets installed in France, one of them was his. Fabienne brought her mother, a vivacious grande dame with an abundant bosom, who still bore more than a trace of her former beauty. Throughout the meal, she cosseted her haughty little bichon frise, 
who never strayed from her lap. The first time I was invited to dinner in France, also at Marichaud's, I'd expected to be served a single entree, as in the U.S., where the term means main dish. Somewhere along the way, Americans had to make the meal more efficient, I suppose, collapsing the leisured stations of continental dining into one TV dinner-style serving. In France, the entree is just that, an entrance into the main part of the meal rather than the main event itself. So when the entree, a cheese tart, was served, I had two helpings. It was so good. I was nonplussed to discover it was only the start. A second dish with several sides followed, then salad, cheese, and dessert. This time, I made a mental note to pace myself, but it proved beyond my powers of self-control. The company broke out of the starter line with champagne and canapé, rounded the first corner with Fabienne's truffle, then settled in for the long stretch. The entree was a traditional cream tart, this time of leek. A simple salad followed, seasoned with a perfect vinaigrette. Then came the meat dish, bouffard de marinière du Rhône, beef marinated for three days and simmered in wine. It melted in my mouth. Later, I tried to find the word bouffard in my French dictionary, but the closest match I could come up with was buffet, to guzzle or feed like an animal. The dish was good enough to guzzle. Then the cheese, camembert, oozing its arterial poison and a locally made goat cheese, runny with age and topped with herbe de Provence. The desserts followed, note the plural, butter cookies à la maison, chocolate tubes filled with Grand Marnier, apple compote, and homemade sugared almonds, a Christmas tradition in Provence. This Rabelaisian feast was topped off by coffee, followed by liqueur. They say scientists have discovered why the French don't die of heart attacks in spite of their rich diet, something to do with red wine. But forget the heart disease. How come they're all so thin? But maybe even that isn't the right question. While the French do concern themselves with staying slender, especially women, they aren't obsessed by it like Americans. Nor do they worry about cholesterol, heart disease, or alcoholism. Yet the American preoccupation with diet and health hasn't made us notably thinner or healthier or less alcoholic than the French. Quite the opposite. The clue to the spelt French waistline may be found where you least expect it. Savoring food and all that goes with it a difficult paradox for one like me, raised in the Puritan environment of America to wrap her mind around. The Puritan settlers frowned upon the pleasures of the senses. While we are a long way from that time, my guess is that Puritan approbation has degraded into a simple ignoring of taste, a kind of gustatory tone deafness. Wonder Bread, for example, could never have been invented in France. But society isn't to blame for the primitism of my own approach to eating prior to my sojourn in Provence. I've always had a tendency to shovel food in, 
without paying attention. The causes are multiple. I'm a compulsive reader and immediately become bored if I don't have a book in hand when I could be reading, such as while eating. Devouring books, I often find I've devoured more than I needed at the dinner table. And the food has disappeared before it has been tasted. A more serious handicap, however, is that my family rarely ate together when I was growing up. My stepfather came home late from work. A rabbi, he kept long hours tending to his pastoral duties, so my mother and I usually ate in the kitchen, noshing at the counter while she prepared his meal. He would eat alone, reading at the table. So in my mind, meals were not a special time set aside to weave together the threads of nourishment and family. They weren't spiced with the sauce of human interaction or slowed by the eddies of conversation to allow for paying attention to either the quality of the moment or the food being eaten. Only during summer vacations, when my stepfather would take over the family cooking, did we sit down for proper meals. He was a gourmand and a fabulous cook, so my gastronomic education wasn't so much lacking as erratic. I never developed good habits, but I could appreciate them in the proper setting. Nonetheless, they were always the exception, not the rule. In France, the rule is the opposite, or at least it was at the time of my visit. I can't vouch for the persistence of tradition in these Philistine times. Work takes a daily break for a long lunch with the family. Children go home from school. Offices, shops, and factories shut down. Even the busiest streets fall silent. The main meal of the day, lunch, receives the honor it requires. Ironically, eating this way discourages overeating, but is as filling as gulping down a couple of double cheeseburgers with fries and a soda. I'm not the first to surmise that quality satisfies the appetite better than quantity, nor that conversation at the table satiates at least as much as food. But theory is no substitute for practice. It is a revelation that must be tasted— to be understood. There are times for quality and quantity to be enjoyed in equal measure. The solstice feast was one of them. After the successful conclusion of the meal allowed him to relax, Michel stood in front of the hearth, sipping his coffee. An expression of deep satisfaction wreathed his face. I joined him as he reflected on the event. "'You know how it was all done?' he asked me, raising his bushy eyebrows in a rhetorical flourish as we toasted our backs at the fireplace, espresso cups in hand. I shook my head no. "'It is a combination of the book—' I never invent a recipe, he paused to underscore the interjection, stubby finger raised, time and love. And of all of these, the last is the most important. Tell me more, I prompted him. I always loved it when Michel regaled me with his philosophical commentaries. 
His views percolated in a pungent stew of anarchism, quasi-Buddhism, and evangelical Christianity, a combination that never ceased to intrigue me with its unexpected flavors. It's a pleasure to give, to share with others, he said as if it were self-evident. He paused and then continued. But there is something else, the hidden part. What's that? Ego, his beetle brows flew up to punctuate the remark. Oh, yes, I concurred, although I wasn't sure where he was going. There's always ego. Of course, of course, he drawled archly. I am no different than the others. We each took the glass of liqueur that someone handed us in passing. When you start to cook for peoples that you don't like all that much, Michelle resumed, you say, aha, I'm going to show them. A moral message seemed in the offing, but I couldn't imagine what that might be. Vindictive ego was unlikely to have a salutary effect on food. What does that do to your cooking? I asked him. It makes it worse. I am, in fact, trying to punish the customer. My sentiment is, I'm going to show this jerk. But the jerk is me. I chewed his comment over. He waited for me to digest it. You're saying there's a spiritual lesson here about egotism, I ventured finally? Voila, he answered. Well, it's not just egotism. More precisely, it's a lack of love. He considered for a moment. Of course, you can't love everyone. If you had to love all your guests, being a professional chef could get complicated. No doubt some balance was being called for here, a scaling back of spiritual expectations. But you can cook for people you don't love without this idea of showing them or punishing them with your expertise, as it were, can't you? I asked. Yes, but only after you have understood this phenomenon, when you have learned a little humility. Was it Buddhism or Christianity that undergirded Michelle's idea of humility? Or did it come out of the place where all spiritual traditions meet, the place where long years of discipline and practice dissolve the ego with the enlightenment that mastery brings? Foodism, like Buddhism, is one of many pathways to nirvana. Humility is a virtue. Gluttony is a sin. Paying my sinner's dues, I succumb to the surfeit of food and drink. Soon after my talk with Michelle, the force of gravity propelled me to the living room couch, pinning me supine by the weight of my stomach. Once there, it took a while before I could bend sufficiently to attain the requisite angle to get up. No doubt it was a predicament well known to the medieval popes at Avignon. Visiting the cavernous banquet hall at the papal palace a few weeks later, I learned it had hosted feasts of truly gargantuan proportions. The coronation banquet of Clement VI featured 118 cattle, 101 calves, 1,023 sheep, 
60 pigs, 914 kid goats, 1,446 geese, 10,471 chickens, 300 pike, 46,856 cheeses, and 50,000 tarts. I can only guess at the egotism of the cooks. It's not difficult to guess the egotism of Pope Clement or the girth of his waistline. Clement VI might have approved the petition submitted to his successor John Paul II by the famed French baker Lionel Poilin. The baker was distressed that gourmandise was listed as one of the seven deadly sins in the French catechism. He argued that the word should be changed to gloutonnerie. In his pacifistic works, Poulin wrote, the gourmand helps quality triumph over quantity. Over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years, la gourmandise becomes such a powerful catalyst of virtue that it imbued its creators with a spiritual state of as high a quality nearly as their gourmet creations, he wrote. Is it pride or humility that makes Monsieur Poilin rank a great chef's creations as greater than his person? In any event, the lesson is clear. Excess promotes sin, quality promotes virtue. It's no surprise that the baker Poilin addressed his plea to such a high religious authority as the Pope. In France, food is a religion, a fact so well known and to mention it is to be guilty of a cliché. But what on the surface appears to be simply a charming idiosyncrasy of the French is revealed upon closer examination as proof of a profound comprehension of the spiritual place of food. Buddhism says that life is suffering. I have no dispute with this teaching, as it counsels the wisdom of acceptance. But is it not as true that life is pleasure and happiness resides in its enjoyment, especially when it feeds the soul as well as the senses? My meal with Michel and Marie-Jo was epicurean, not in the self-indulgent gluttonous sense of the term as it's used today, but in the spirit of Epicurus himself, the enjoyment of simple pleasures shared with friends. Michel himself had a profound interest in the spiritual dimensions of food. He called it the philosophie d'alimentation. One morning, several months later, Michel, marie and I were breakfasting on some chewy fresh rolls from the market and marie homemade mulberry jam as the spring birds sang their little hearts out in the olive grove next to the patio. The olives had survived the winter with that harm. Again, Michel took up the theme. You are what you eat, he stated with an air of inviting questions. You mean biologically? No, no, no. I mean it spiritually. But it is not just what you eat, but more importantly, how you eat. I mumbled encouragingly through my crumbs for him to continue. You pay attention. You add a little salt. You think about what you are eating. You see what I mean? Marie-Jo chimed in. Yes, because there are people who eat just to supply themselves with nourishment. Michelle interjected. 
to fill themselves up, Marie-Jo continued. They pay absolutely no attention. They eat anything. The consciousness disabled, Michel snorted. Do you mean buffet? I was proud to use this newly learned word. Like an animal? Voila. He took out his tobacco pouch and began rolling a cigarette. A lot of Americans eat like that, I said. Including me, I added sheepishly. Yes, that's why you have the problem of obesity in America, c'est dramatique, and it's beginning to appear in France. In the schools you see this espèce du merde of chocolate bar. I know these kinds of candies for kids. They are shit. Marie-Jo inserted. McDough, too, with all the sugary drinks. I shook my head sadly. I was thinking yesterday that here in France people have it so good. The food, the good company around the table. Why do they want to do things the American way? Especially the worst of it. Well, it's easily explained, Michelle told me. It is because America is a myth, the American dream. And the cinema, which you have colonized, Hollywood was another one of Michelle's betoins about American cultural imperialism, and the music, and so on. All the young people dream of going to America, Marie-Jo concurred. Of course, Michelle exclaimed with sarcastic levity. All the children of the middle and upper classes want to take a tour of America. It's a must. He pulled on his cigarette and blew an exaggerated smoke ring into the air. Well, they also go to learn the language, Marie-Jo said soothingly. Well, they could go to England for that, I commented. Now Michelle laughed scornfully. It's the same thing. In England, they eat like pigs. He tipped his chair dangerously back and puffed another smoke ring. Yeah, fish and chips, I joined him in derision. Oh, he brought the chair's front legs down with a thud. Now, that's fantastic. The fish and chips are fantastic. The mood became giddy. Marie-Jo waxed rhapsodic on American fare. And you know the hamburger and the hot dogs with sauerkraut and mustard. Ooh la la! That's also good, she enthused. Then added prudently, from time to time. Michel pursed his lips at me and shrugged his shoulders. You see? In France, they can't resist it. They love the hamburgers at McDonald's. And the French sandwiches totally lack imagination. It's always ham with butter, ham with butter. His lips pursed a disdainful grimace. You can't find a good sandwich here. It's not possible. And so, sated with good food and conversation and buoyed by the leaven of internationalist goodwill, we concluded our repast. Like a fine meal, Michel's lessons in the French art of gourmandise required time to savor and digest. I've come back to them again and again, catching myself wolfing down my fare, already living in the next instead of the present moment, or stuffing myself with an overly large portion, ensnared in the illusion that quantity is equivalent to quality. Then I imagine Michel looking at me from under his beetle brows with an expression of amused remonstrance, 
and I slow down to taste what I'm taking in. That was my story, The Food Off. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Go to writersvoice.net to listen to or download past shows, plus find out more about our guests or read book excerpts. You can also sign up to get the show delivered straight to your inbox or subscribe to the podcast and the newsletter. And follow us on Twitter at Writer's Voice, all one word. I'm your host, Francesca Rihanna.